0: Slavic Connection listeners, I'm your host Misha, and today I'm joined by my wonderful co-host Lara and our insightful guest, Dr. Alexander Chertenko. He's a Ukrainian literary scholar and a research fellow at the University um, of Gießen, Germany. Is, there
1: are two possible ways to
0: pronounce it.
1: Yeah, so it's <laughs> undipus.
0: English would be undipus, but I
2: can do undipus. I like yes. it sounds more authentic.
0: <laughs> Dr. Chertenko's expertise encompasses wars and identity conflicts in post-socialist states, as well as regional literature from Ukraine, Poland, Belarus, and Russia. Our guest is uniquely positioned to trace the development of Ukrainian literature as the country is going through war since 2014. The
1: first ones you would suggest, yeah, that's those are the thi- those are the people who were traumatized on the front. You would rather expect they are mostly subjective, they're mostly traumatized, yeah, so it's kind of a kind of, uh, black and white perspective. The reality is the things uh, look uh, just the other way around. <laughs> it's not
2: a typical text selection. Listening to the Slavic Connection, brought to you by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Texas at Austin. Are we, are we are you ready to start? As ready as you'll ever be. Well, then I will kick this off. Dr. Chertenko, thank you very much for joining us. I was hoping we could start the conversation just to uh, hear a little bit about you and your, your background, uh, what you've been working on.
1: Well, to start with, I'm a, uh, how, how do you call it, Wissenschaftliche Mitarbeiter, a no? uh, research fellow. That would be the, the, the right way to translate as a research fellow at the Institute for Slavic Studies and uh, at the University of Gießen in Germany. So I've been working there since 2019. And I'm currently working at uh, my so-called habilitation. I am not sure if you if you have something like that in in the U.S. Habilitation. Uh, well, uh, it's it's a long talk about the other academic system in Germany in in uh, in general. But uh, it's the second dissertation, the second thesis. So it's we have two.
2: I'm uh, yeah, I could barely finish one, so that's already very impressive to me.
1: Well, and uh, it's it's a long term project uh, dealing with uh, Ukrainian, Russian, and Polish, and perhaps also German, I'm not sure at the moment, uh, literature uh, dealing with the war in Donbass between 2014 and 2022, when the war in Donbass ceased to be a war in Donbass and became a kind of open. Russian-Ukrainian war. So it's it's the focus of my latest research during the last three or four years and some addition to that is also my research on, uh, on the research project Undipus which we would perhaps uh, mention later in, in detail. It, it also has a somewhat related topic so it deals with uh, women perspectives on uh, the war in Donbass. So it's kind of uh, other uh, point of view Uh, from which I'm looking at basically the same bulk of texts, but uh, trying to find out if there are some, possibly some, originally, uh, female ways of describing or dealing with war. Um, so it's it's kind of center of my research. That is of course not the whole thing. I'm I'm dealing with other things. I'm very much interested in, in uh, Soviet culture. I've published some some uh, some texts on that. I'm very much interested uh, in in a topic which is somewhat neglected in my in my today's uh, academic practice. That is medicine and literature and. Earlier, I mean, uh, earlier I used to be uh, not a Slavic studies scholar, but a German studies scholar. So I, have I, 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 I written my first thesis in uh, German studies on uh, Swiss literature. So it's kind of, uh, kind, it was kind of transitioned about seven, six or seven years ago which, uh, when, I, when I changed to, to comparative Slavic studies.
2: What inspired that change?
1: Well, it was, uh, on one hand, uh, I just emigrated uh, to Germany from, from, uh, from Ukraine. And on the other hand, uh, it was, well, as you probably see from the topics of my research, it was kind of interest on, uh, in, in events which were going on then. 2015, 2016, when I was making my first publications in, in, in uh, Slavic Studies proper, it was mostly an interest and a desire to understand what is going on, how literature reacts on that, because I'm a literary scholar, I couldn't change that, even changing my my uh, direction within the literary studies, how the culture reacts on that, and what p- could probably be done to, yeah, to prevent some things which have happened since 2014-15. I mean, we couldn't prevent the war going on. But there are some cultural effects in Ukraine, outside of Ukraine, which could be possibly prevented or possibly made not that dangerous so it was it was actually my idea of, of studying
0: studying this material Since your area of research is focused on identity conflicts and war in Ukraine began and there was a lot of identity conflicts in Donbas but also in Ukraine proper, how did Ukrainian literature community as a whole approach the question of war in 2014 since it was a new experience for the whole population and how it evolved until the full-scale invasion? That's a
1: good question. There are two, basically two Large box of text or text uh, we call it text corpuses, yeah, so the first one if you, if we mean Ukrainian literature, yeah so i I, as, I understand it as as a question to Ukrainian literature rather than because there there are other literatures which are also reacting on war, mostly in Russia. It's quite of natural because russia was was uh, very much involved in that war as well, although it didn't pronounce it that loud as it, do, as it does today. There are also various approaches to the issue of war or the war in Donbass. But speaking of Ukrainian literature, you have two, two great box of texts. Um, the first one is uh, front prose. Yeah? So it's kind of uh, it's, Kind of mostly non-fictional diaries or non-fictional accounts on, on the things which this or that writer, author uh, has evidence himself. And uh, on the other hand, there are very many fictional texts dealing with that. And that is, of course, the dynamics is, of course, that you have mostly have non-fictional evid- evidences of the, the testimonies on, on what was going on in, during the first, the, or the first two years from the people on the front, from volunteers, from medics. And then after 2015-16, you have mostly fictional texts which are dealing with narrative on war and those things uh, those two parts of text are very different you would rather expect i would say or i have i i, I would have rather rather expected that the texts which were written later they have a larger distance longer distance they have better perspective for looking at other things that happened in the donbass and that they would have been more objective the first ones you would suggest, yeah, that's, those, are the th- those are the people who were traumatized on the front. You would rather expect they are mostly subjective, they're mostly traumatized, yeah, so it's kind of, kind of a black and white perspective. The reality is the things uh, look uh, just the other way around. So you have texts from the, the testimonies written in, during the first two years, and they are mostly a great deal more objective and multifaceted than the texts written after 2014 or 2016-17. That is, the texts written mostly in fictional manner. Mostly by the people who haven't been at the front, yeah, who are reading uh, reading on the on the events uh, just from from media. It's also an interesting thing. You do not have there was a phenomenon of so-called lieutenant uh, prose yeah, in in the Soviet Union after the Second World War. That is, there was a whole range of authors who have been at war, and then after returning uh, from from the Second World War uh some of them just during the next couple of years and some of them after a couple of decades have begun to, to write on 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 what they have experienced and um mostly also mostly in fictional forms but there are a lot a lot of uh, autobiographical references in that yeah and they were very critical on war as a phenomenon that didn't happen in ukraine so you don't have this kind of kind of lutin and prose. Overwhelming majority of of the authors haven't been at the front. So they're writing just uh, kind of uh, from second hand yeah? they do not have uh, experience there are a couple of a couple of persons of course who have been there so it's uh, Artyom Chekh, for example. He has uh, he's written from an, autobi- from an autobiographical perspective, or Boris Huminyuk, as uh, a poet, Ukrainian poet, who has written. Well, quite interesting lyrical lyrical production from him is known on, on the war on the war and Donbas, But the most of them, the most of fictional uh, authors of fictional texts, haven't been there. I thought it was a rather interesting phenomenon because uh, you basically what you basically do have in those uh, later texts is the reproduction of uh, official or semi official narratives on the war in Donbas. Yeah, So just uh, reproduced in 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 various ways. Some of them criticized, of course, but many many of official narratives are being just taken over and uh, developed in, in a fictional manner. You have basically after 2015 we had a so phenomenon of so-called Facebook dictatorship. Yeah. It was mostly on the political level when you have when the situation was was I mean it was not very rare that uh, political decisions were made just under the pressure from the Facebook bloggers. Or there had been so called Facebook ministers, yeah, who were called forth to be to be ministers just because the Facebook public opinion was working in that direction. That was that was also an interesting phenomenon. It was only Facebook, Facebook only. You know, so it didn't didn't concern. There have been there haven't been any uh, Twitter dictatorship or something, which would be probably uh, other other way in the U.S. But the phenomenon is 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 uh, in my eyes is very important, and that's that was also the medium uh, where you did have very. Very many narratives developed in a kind of very much patriotic and very much pronounced, pronounced patriotic way. Yeah, it's kind of uh, developed by people who has all, have also never been to uh, on the front, and that is precisely the direction which you do not find in uh, these evidences uh, of of those who have been there. It was a, a very interesting for me to to look at that, and I mean, if you are asking on the kind of development within this fictional part, then I would say it's not easy to to speak of any tendencies because it's it's a, it's a fresh material, yes, so we're just working on it. And I must say, I do not also have or not always have uh, the necessary distance to that because uh, I'm also involved this way. Or so I have, I have uh, I'm, I'm emo- emotionally, I'm, I'm not very, very far away from that. That if we look at these thoughts as a kind of preliminary results, or something which can be revised later, then I would suppose uh, that we indeed have a kind of um, radicalization tendency there. So the radicalization of well, perhaps we could, we could call it nationalist tendencies, yes. The radicalization of the othering of various groups of people, yeah? not only of Russians, which is quite understandable. I do not say it's right, no? but it's understandable. But also that is there's, there's a very important tendency since the war is going on, not in, on the whole Ukraine, but it started as, as protests in Donbass and uh, well, not, on, so not only in Donbass. It also started in Kharkiv, uh, in, in Mykolaiv, in Odessa. There have been a whole belt of, of anti-Maidan protests, which have been going on in 2014. And that, those are the regions which are eagerly othered. In the Ukrainian literature, after 2014, there is a very, very important article on on the so-called inner Orientalization of the Donbas in in, in Ukrainian culture by uh, formerly Ukrainian and now German historian uh, Andriy Portnoy, and the tendency he he was speaking on uh, the so-called Galician reductionism. Yes, yeah? so it's kind of term he he coined designates the tendency of looking on uh, Donbass, but not only on the Donbass, uh, also on the southern and eastern Ukraine as a whole, as something, as, as something which is not uh, Ukrainian enough, as on the regions which are too pro-Russian, too non-European, and out of that reasoning, underdeveloped yeah, it's very, it was a very widely used stereotype when looking to Donbass as a region of Urki, no, this is, yeah, those are the former former prisoners who just committed some some crime and then then spent some time in the prison. Or banditi, no, the, the people the people who have uh, been involved into mass mass uh, scale crime in, in, in the nineties and then did, just didn't seize that paradigm, but but remained in that scene to, up up to the election of the of President Yanukovych. And this becomes even more radicalized after two thousand fourteen. Mostly in fictional literature, in non-fictional literature, in, in the evidences, in the testimonies of the first years, well, you also find the fragments of the narratives, because the authors are the naive authors, mostly. No? They do not produce the narratives of their own, but they see the things with their own eyes, and they see that the people the people of Donbass are not homogenic. There are different kinds of people uh, supporting different kinds of things. And for the people writing from the distance, for people using the ready-made narratives, the, well, it's it's not that evident, they do not see it. And that's, I think, precisely the case, uh, the, 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 the reason why they are just writing it in that direction. So radicalization and kind of canonization of, of, of these narratives is, is very much present uh, after 2004, 15, 16, up to 22. After 22, it's just another story. I'm not ready to to speak on that. It's too fresh.
2: Still developing, yeah.
0: Yes, I wanted to ask you, because you said that a lot of the authors marginalized Donbass, but also this wave of protests about anti-Maidan. Was there any literature in Ukraine that supported this anti-Maidan narrative? Because... I know that in the West, scholars often overlook it because it's usually published by some exiles in Russia. And I know that you've mentioned that you lo- looked into Russian literature on the war as well.
1: Yeah, that's that's the problem, of course. Uh, or perhaps it's not a problem at all, but it's problematic to, to find such literary texts in Ukraine because there are no texts dealing with anti-Maidan. After 2014, you just cannot write on anti-Maidan and publish it. I do not know. I would rather repeat it. I do not know if it's, it's right or wrong. But it's, it's, it's the way it is. There have been, there was a, a very characteristic case with poetess Yevhenia Bilchenko in, in Kiev, was, who began in 2014. She was a lecturer at the National Pedagogical uh, University in Kiev, where I have also studied about 20 years ago. And she began after, after the victory of the Maidan, she began uh, writing texts which were rather anti-Maidan in nature. I do not know if, you, if we should prohibit these things or if Ukrainian intellectual elites should have prohibited this kind of uh, this kind of thing said in, in, in literature, I would rather say no, because if you have them in the culture, then you can 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 polemicize with that. If you have that uh, just pushed out of the culture, well, then uh, you probably do the an 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 unwise move, forcing people who tell these kind of things to join the Russian mainland because you do not have any other option. Yeah, just 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 pressed out of of this discussion that shouldn't mean i support this kind of things but i support the multiplicity of views yeah and mostly in in indeed mostly most of those most of the of, of the authors who have stood on this on the side of the anti-Maidan ideology whereas i ask myself what is actually anti-Maidan ideology there is no ideology anti-Maidan just means you are against the Maidan but there is a whole bunch of things you could say from that perspective the same way as you do not you cannot say there is a pro-Maidan ideology yeah it's it's an oversimplification to say, if you're pro-Maidan, then you are the right guy. Yeah? So it's, it's, it doesn't mean that at all. But nevertheless, uh, if, we, if we designate it this way, the people who were on the anti-Maidan side, they were just forced to, to leave so this, one way or another. There are, of course, many texts written on the, on the territory of the both so-called uh, people's republics. They have, uh, or had, I don't know if, if those unions still exist after uh, February 22, but before that, uh, they had uh, two writers' unions, one for each republic and they produced uh, somehow uh, this friendship of between the republics didn't work on the level of writers unions so that they just split it apart and didn't haven't haven't formed any any unified union for the both of although the both both republics are actually quite small and the amount of authors they could include in those uh, unions was quite small but nevertheless they didn't manage it so the both unions published their own authors and among them the most of them those are of course the, the authors of the Third, fourth, fifth row. So just uh, you wouldn't just expect that they are uh, writing something others that than uh, Gruffermani. But there were, of course, uh, a couple of authors who, who were who could be mentioned seriously, as if, uh, Valeria Zaslavska, for example, who also presented this kind of. I wouldn't I wouldn't necessarily call it pro-Russian, but it's, it's of course of course partly pro-Russian stance and. Yeah, that was the reaction the reaction on the on, on, on the Maidan on the other side of the barricades, you know. Nobody took Valeria Zaslavska seriously, for example, on the Ukrainian side. Which doesn't mean she is a bad she's a bad poet. Those uh, things do not exclude each other what is also interesting uh, if we are speaking on these two unions the luhansk union uh, was more active than the Don- donetsk union as as far as i can understand so probably this it's it's very problematic to get the books they they were publishing in on paper because how could you order it the post doesn't function and you you cannot you cannot you cannot, call, you cannot go you can't you couldn't just take the train and go to go to donetsk to buy some books there yeah for me personally with the ukrainian pass it was be, it would be a kind of a kind of unwanted suicide. But also on the Russian side, nobody nobody sold those books either. They published in Russian in Russian publishing houses, which was the case, uh, for example, for. Uh, Mr. Berezin, uh, he he was uh, he was a head of the of the Donetsk Writers Union, and he published in in in, in Russian publishing houses. But those who, who have not, and both unions mostly didn't, or members of both union both mostly didn't publish in in Russian publishing houses. Then you the only access to that material you have is just uh, to look at the uh, websites of 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 the uh, writers unions. They publish the PDF files there, and you just get to. Know know what they are publishing. And the Luhansk Writers' Union have published, I think, three volumes of collected works, collected texts of of different authors. The point is, I'm not sure if if numerically, I I can figure it out numerically, uh, just in a correct manner, but about 60, 70, 80% of the authors who have published there have not been, didn't belong to the Union. They were Russian authors from, from somewhere. So it's, uh, it's kind of kind of very intri- intricate uh, entanglements of, of both literatures you observe there. It just one, uh, the one literature, if you if you can call it literature from, from two republics, just flowing into, into provincial uh, Russian literature of this, of this third row. for example, know the authors you do not necessarily find in, in larger publishing houses in, in Russia) <music>
2: That was a fantastic explanation you we very much appreciate you know you taking the time to discuss and add nuance to a lot of, of this discussion of, of this evolution of ukrainian literature and you know this reaction and response to the violence and aggression that's been happening in their own country obviously again we would be remiss if we didn't give you a chance to also discuss undipus what it is and how you got involved in it and what, what it's been doing
1: well that is a joint project which we thought about first time, I think, two years ago. And the idea was uh, precisely to oppose kind of unification, kind of narrative unification within the mostly Ukrainian, but also German field of Ukrainian studies. Uh, The idea was just to provide some perhaps alternative narratives on what was going on, also after 2014, but not necessarily during that time, and uh, to pluralize somehow the Field of Ukrainian studies. Technically, we couldn't do it in, in Ukraine because it's it's a, a German based project, and it is now it is funded by the Federal Ministry of Education and Research in Germany. So only the researchers from Germany could participate uh, in in that. But the idea was just just to provide something different. Undipus is an abbreviation of undisciplined, pluralizing Ukrainian studies. That's uh, the topic, uh, that, or the overall topic of the of the project. Now going to proceed for the next three and a half years, something like that. And the project has started on the 1st of February. And that is also an interesting thing. I mean, uh, we have designed the project to deal with uh, Ukrainian war, uh, to, uh, another part of the title was understanding, uh, pluralizing Ukrainian studies, understanding Ukrainian war. But we also, but we of course meant the other war. So it was designed to understand the war in Donbass, local one. Three weeks about, to a, a little bit more than three weeks after we have started the project, we had, we, we've got a confirmation of financing, I think, in the, in the end of 2021, 2021. So we just made our ideas of how we are going to proceed during the next four years. But then, of course, three weeks after we have started the project, uh, the war has crossed all that. And we're still trying to adjust somehow what we, have, what we have been planning to do during the four years to the things going on now. So we, we, are, we are now pressed to engage more in public discourse. Mm-hmm. And that is a very a very complicated issue because after february of 2022 we have basically a very much emotionalized and radicalized speaking on ukraine in all realms in germany perhaps little less than in ukraine but the principle is the same so if our idea was that there are some things which are not which are not necessarily welcomed uh, while well, speaking about Ukraine. So you, n- you wouldn't be called a patriotic researcher if you, were, if you dwell too much on Ukrainian nationalism. Because, of course, you, were, you then said Ukrainian nationalism, well, that's very much marginal, basing on uh, election results. Well, election results are marginal. Far-right movements were, as if, we, if we look at them from the electoral perspective, they were marginal but the discourse was not marginal if you look at the at the discourse at the literary discourse the cultural discourse the nationalist discourse was not marginal god forbid you to say that
0: you just said that uh,
1: well we are undisciplined you know <laughs> but uh, after february 2022 you just also had well before february 2022 most well we all didn't have a very large ethical problem with saying that allowed yeah we are not alone on that field there are of course some other colleagues who are just do, doing well not the same thing but uh, somehow similar things uh, as we do but after 2022 you are just uh, categorized you are instantly categorized along the black black white dividing lines and depending on your on, on your listeners if you are doing that in public if you're criticizing ukraine in public today that means you are criticizing the victim of the aggression, and the question is: Could you, may you, criticize the victim of the aggression? Yeah. In the first, during the first months, that was, I think, forbidden at all. Now it's kind of, kind of becoming a little bit more possible than it used to be. But if you are listeners, as I mean. Uh, I'm basing on my uh, German experiences or on, on, the, on the experiences of other colleagues working in Germany, where you also have that very much radicalized stance towards uh, criticizing Ukraine or speaking something which is not patriotic and, and connected with high hopes on Ukrainian victory or something like that. Like that. If you are telling people that there are some, some things to be, to be critical of, And you are either uh, either understood as a Putin first year, that is, there's, uh, I, I think, uh, a terminus, te- terminus technicus we have uh, for the people understanding Putin. Yeah, that means uh, those people who support Putin, because understanding, I have nothing against understanding Putin, we'll try. I mean, we c- couldn't necessarily succeed, but we can try. But supporting Putin, and that is the other thing, of course. But Putin first year, supporting, and they say, we have always said that Ukraine is a fascist state, and if you are telling there are nationalist tendencies until now, and they are becoming even more strong, then they say that that's what we have expected. Ukraine is a fascist state. It just you just uh, uh, underpin our our uh, opinion. Yeah, and the people who are not Putin first but who are rather tending to support Ukraine, they would say, well, then you are a Putin fascist. Because, because you are telling these things at this moment. Either the, those things are completely wrong, that would be one option, or they are perhaps not completely wrong, but you ha- we have to wait before the victory is there, and then you, yeah, then you can criticize. And that is a, a very, very intricate, uh, very complex uh, ethical point. Yeah? Because, indeed, if you criticizing Ukraine for right or wrong, but if you are doing that in public, and the public consists of the people who are, who are saying, well, that's a, that's a nationalist fascist state, why should we invest our money in that? Then you have a problem, because your criticism has just another added value. It functions the other way around. So you have to be very cautious when choosing your words, and looking at your at the people present, and at the situation. We haven't thought it would be that complex two years ago, where we designed the project, but now it's the, it, it's the way it is. So we have, they have our difficulties with that. But we are trying, I think, the, the only possible way to escape that double bind. So you just, uh, you cannot, you cannot be, you cannot silence things, I think. That would be also the wrong way to treat Ukraine. The only way out of this is, in my opinion, to be as multifaceted, as open as possible. I was present yesterday at another panel which interested me very much on, on uh, news coverage on Ukraine in, in the U.S. And I think what those, uh, I cannot remember the names. Uh, there were, there were two, two, uh, two, two people speaking there, two speakers. One of them was an American journalist who was in Ukraine also at that time when the aggression began in February 2022. And the other one is a trained historian, uh, who's writing a blog on Ukraine, something like that. And I think their position is also something of, 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 of the position I would imagine to be effective in this in this context mm-hmm. that you do not silence things, but you also uh, you name the evident things. Yeah? So if you are criticizing the victim, you do not necessarily mean that the victim did something which initiated the aggression. You do not play in the hands of the aggressor. You do not say Putin is not the aggressor or Russia is not the aggressor. You're just, just giving a more balanced more balanced picture on that. I, I hope at least that audiences we are, we are speaking to, the people, the colleagues we are speaking to, are perhaps not, a, no col- not, not the colleagues, but uh, just the people who are willing to know more about Ukraine. I think the people could uh, handle the truth. I think the people could handle the criticism, and I think they can understand. I mean, uh, if if, you, if there is racism in Ukraine, and there is racism in Ukraine, the Ukrainian refugees are also showing a lot of racism. But uh, that doesn't mean it's a racist state. Yeah, but you are expected to say there is nothing like that. Yeah, so just you, you cannot you, you cannot be free in telling that, is, that there, is, there are a lot of racist phenomena in Ukraine. There are, but that doesn't mean that Ukraine is a racist on the whole, because there are also a lot of people who are not. And that's, that's the point. I think the, the, the people can, can uh, are capable of understanding that there is a kind of diversity, that Ukraine is not homogenic, and that's, that's the fact that it is homogenic and not an ideal state. Uh, And the people of Ukraine are not the ideal people, precisely the the same way uh, that the soldiers of Ukraine are not angels. Handling this truth or handling this diversity doesn't prevent the fact that you support Ukraine because it's the victim of the aggression, and that's that should be actually should be enough. So I I think if you um, if you take it as granted then you have the fields, uh, you have the, the space where you could speak very different things on, on, on Ukrainian past and present. And that's, what, that's the thing we are trying to do. So we have, speaking uh, in concrete terms, we have, we have five projects within the joint, joint UNDIPUS project. And that is an interdisciplinary, we have three projects in Greifswald. One in Gießen, which is Main, and one in Regensburg. Uh, there are three university uh, university uh, cities in, in Germany. So Main is dealing with uh, female perspectives on war, as I told. The other one uh, in, in Regensburg is dealing with uh, Donbass and Upper Silesia as industrial regions. And that is very important uh, also in concerning Donbass and the picture of Donbass. So the colleagues are just trying to figure out how this industrial nature of, of the region. Uh, formed its image in culture uh, and how the both phenomena are interrelated and there are three projects in Greifswald, which is uh, a leading institution in this in this uh, joint venture there is also a project of my colleague Roman Dubasevich uh, who is also speaking on uh, who is uh, which is also dealing on war but rather on uh, pop cultural phenomenon where I myself restrict myself to to literary phenomena mostly there is a project of Olga Plachotny, who who's always dealing with queer and queerness in Ukraine during the war and the conflicts that rise out of that because of course queerness and uh, nationalism and uh, things which cannot necessarily coexist peacefully and uh the third project is also uh on uh, also on gradual sides uh, dealing with the multi language and multinational uh, nature of uh, the region in the southern ukraine so bujak it's a region uh, between ukraine uh romania and uh, moldova uh so it's kind of a very interesting point of view where you have the region uh at the margin of ukrainian territory where ukrainian as a language and ukrainian culture is not central at all but it was felt, it was thought about as a kind of uh, imperial culture, which is very interesting because the people there, they they do not necessarily identify themselves with uh, Ukrainian nation. They are not Ukrainian nationals, and uh, they were already one time colonized by by, by the Soviets, but uh, with Russian culture. They just learned Russian in addition to their own mother tongue and then, uh, after 1991, they had, uh, they were confronted with Ukrainians coming and saying, Russian is not the language you, ha- you must have known. So it was uh, the third language they had to learn. And that is, of course, a very, a very different perspective on, on the national project. So I think it's, 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 it's also kind of an uh, interesting, uh, take on undisciplining Ukrainian studies.
2: very much for describing the project it sounds you know absolutely fascinating and i think injecting nuance into a lot of discussions that have become very black and white is incredibly important
0: you know not many people's situation in the republics like in detail because they would just say it's all on the margins it's uh so like forget about it it's not you know and and you took the time and
1: well i mean that's that's part of the reality Mm -hmm. so you cannot you cannot overlook it. If you are trying to figure out how the literature and the culture reacts to, uh, to, to the ongoing war, then um, you cannot just uh, restrict yourself to Ukrainian Because it's, it's one point, it's very diverse in itself, but it's only one point. There are other points. A Polish point is, very, is a very interesting one. A German point is a very interesting one and if you're comparing these things you just just have a better a far far better overview of what is going on and you have also you 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 are not uh, you that's uh, in that case you are not exclusively focused on Ukrainian perspective and you see Ukrainian perspective is only a one perspective which is not perfect and which can be can be seen from different points of view which perhaps in this or that point it just Cannot be cannot be respected. In some other points, it can be respected. But if you are dealing only with Ukrainian, that somehow you you become this uh, exclusivist view on the things going on. Yeah, it's just just like now, if you're reading Facebook Ukrainian Ukrainian part of Facebook, then you you have the you have the impression nobody has suffered uh, as as bad as Ukrainians do now. But it's not true. Many people have suffered. There was a Yugoslavia war. war in the 90s and people have suffered there. Nobody cares now but it was about 25, 25, 27 years ago and on the other hand when the Ukrainians are telling which my students have done I uh, have, have one tandem seminar uh, where the most participants are from Ukraine, the students of Kiev Mohid Academy they're telling Ukrainian suffering in this war is the same as a lot more. And the holodomor is the same as Holocaust, and Holocaust is the same as Gulag. If you hear that, you are asking yourself a couple of questions of whether which which narratives are serving are served to the students so that they think this way. That's why. Mm-hmm.
2: Absolutely, the best of luck from us on on the project and its successes and and again thank you very much for stopping by and chatting with us
1: thank you thank you for the possibility to speak uh, that is very important in our time so if you have if you have the, the access to the mic you know
0: <laughs>
1: uh, they have another field where you can uh, develop perhaps some things which uh, not necessarily uh, highly expected from, from on the on the side of on the side of uh, black and white audiences.
0: Yes, yes. it's always good.
2: I, I completely agree. Like all of these moments are awful and deserve their own space, but acknowledging one doesn't diminish the other. Like we can consider them all. Together and separately, but but you're right. It's with with the black and white thing too. It just it it simplifies things, and I think that's easier for people to just intake that information because the world is complicated and it's hard to discuss and understand a very complicated world. But this is sort of what we've kind of come to, and especially with social media too, and like how we disperse information. It's it's all it's all a big ball of just. I
1: mean, yes. this of course, this of course depends on, on the listeners, yeah. So you, would, you wouldn't you wouldn't go to the Ukrainian diaspora and uh, e- explain and explain uh, your differentiated view on uh, what was going on in Ukraine since 2014 in detail, because you wouldn't have an appropriate reaction on their sides. I suppose if you are going to, to mobilize the financing on their sides you wouldn't tell, well, uh, you, in Ukraine there are nationalist tendencies and there is there is a, 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 there are many things which you, you would criticize in Ukraine because you wouldn't get money. So it's kind of, uh, you just differentiate between different audiences. But uh, if the scientific, if the academia is beginning to uh, acts the same way as the activists do while collecting the money in Ukrainian diaspora or somewhere else. That, that's a problem because uh, I think the scientists must do the other work, just not to repeat the things they have read in Facebook. That's, that's kind of different, different agenda.
2: The Slavic Connection is part of the Texas Podcast Network, the conversations changing the world, brought to you by the University of Texas at Austin. The opinions expressed in this program represent the views of the hosts and the guests and not of the University of Texas at Austin. For more information, please visit us online at slobxradio.com. Thank you. The Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies condemns the Russian Federation's military invasion of Ukraine. We stand in support of the people of Ukraine who are fighting for their lives and sovereignty in the face of the unjustified invasion by Russian military forces. Thank you again. I know <laughs> I could sit here and like do this all day, you know,
0: but <laughs> it's something we've been thinking about. So, like in detail, because they would just say it's all so on the margins. So, uh, so, like, forget about it. It's not.